Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 24th, 2014, and this is episode 1471 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Monday, it's time for your feedback. These are emails that you've sent to me at jack at the Survival Podcast. Dot com Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And the formula in the subject line to make sure I see your email is to use three words, one word of your choice followed by for Jack. So it would be something like article for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, concern for Jack, video for Jack. You got it? If you do that, I am going to see your email. I am going to read it. There's a couple hundred of them a day. It doesn't mean that you're going to get on the air. It doesn't mean you're not going to get on the air. But if you do that, I will at least see your email 99% of the time. A few might fall into the spam monster box and get deleted and not found. But 99%, I would say, of the time, if you do that, I'm at least going to scan your email and you have the ability to possibly get on a show on our Monday shows for listener feedback. Before we get to your emails today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. I think gold and silver should be part of your investment portfolio. And when I'm looking to buy gold or silver, I go to JM Bullion. Do you want to know why? Well, number one, I can email the president of the company and take care of problems for my audience. That means I know they're a good sponsor, and I try to support my sponsors. Number two, if I compare the pricing of most of their items to the two biggest silver houses out there and gold houses out there, Monix and Atmex, Uh, JM usually is a little bit better on price. If they were a little bit more, I probably wouldn't care to do the customer service level that I get there. But when you get better customer service and better pricing, it makes it really easy. How about this? Uh, you can only order orders, minimum order levels $100. Now, that might sound like a bad thing. But you know why it's a good thing? Uh, free shipping. Uh, yeah, they do free shipping on all orders. So $100 minimum order. And folks... If you're ordering silver and gold through the mail and paying shipping and you're buying like two ounces, you're probably not buying co you know, cost effectively with silver. It's just too expensive to ship. If you're going to buy one or two coins at a time, you're better off doing it from a local shop and buying at retail. So with that, it makes sense to be ordering at least $100 at a time when you're ordering and then getting free shipping, better pricing, better service. Yeah, I'm a fan. JM Bullion It's where I get my silver and gold and where I think you should too. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. You should get your Berkey from the Berkey Guy. I can tell you something because I know my kiddo doesn't listen to my show, right? My son, who uh, is an awesome kiddo, right? A kiddo, geez, he's a young man now. He's 25. But he's getting a Berkey for Christmas. Guess where I bought his Berkey system from? That's right, Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason. That's where I got it from. And I didn't shake Jeff down for a special deal. I got the same pricing that you would get on a big Berkey with the upper and lower filters because my son is on municipal water. And uh, so he's drinking fluoride. He's giving it to his soon-to-be wife and his, uh, his basically his adopted son at this point. And uh, we want the fluoride, the chlorine, all that crap out of his water. Best way I know to do that was a great-looking Berkey system. So he's getting one for Christmas. And uh, I'll tell you what, I think Jeff's going to have Black Friday pricing on that system on Friday. So you might want to check that out. Anyway, with that, the next uh, thing I want to do for you guys today is the history segment, the year 1471. This one has a lot of current event meaning, I guess it'd be the way. Let me read you the 
segment, and then Alex's take on it. Alex Shrugged, of course, who does these for us, puts them on the TSP wiki. And uh, then I'll tell you my view of it. John Fortescue is a judge of the King's Bench and unservingly loyal to King Henry VI. After King Henry was deposed, John fed with the, fled with the family and began the education of the young Prince of Wales. He wrote a book to help with that education. It is entitled Commendation of the Laws of England. Obviously, the judge is unhappy with the English justice system as it is. The book won't be published for another 70 years, but it will be remembered in the modern day for two quotes. Comparisons are odious, and one would much rather that 20 guilty persons should escape the punishment of death than one innocent person should be condemned and suffer capitally. My take by Alex Shrug, people who oppose the capital punishment generally use the above quote to justify never putting someone to death for a capital crime. The quote is actually advocating the use of stricter judicial procedure and rules of evidence. It is human nature to want to win, to get vengeance, to bring justice to the guilty, to blame someone, anyone, when one feels wrong. In Ferguson, Missouri, Mayor Brown lays dead. The mob demands that someone be blamed. Oh, Mr. Brown lies dead. Uh, the mob demands that someone be blamed. The grand jury must consider the evidence carefully using strict procedure. Lies, lives hanging in the balance. However, it turns out, whoever lives or dies, when we use the rule of law and strict procedure, we have done the best we can and leave the rest to God. Just to be clear, it seems to me that police officer did the best he could. However, all I know is what has come from the media, and the media is notorious for getting things wrong. So however it turns out, if we follow procedure, we know we have done our best, even if we get it wrong. People get the most angry when the procedures are circumvented for the sake of fill-in-the-blank. Here's my thought on this. Number one, the Ferguson thing. I'm standing by what I said months ago about this. I don't know, and you don't either, and no one's telling you the truth, and we won't know until the system works through this, and we can't even trust the system, but in Alex's words here, that's the best we can do. You don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. We have not gotten all the information, and when you say it was definitely Brown's fault or it was definitely the officer's fault with the amount of information you have, you're pulling some part of it out of your ass and completing the blank, and we shouldn't do that. But my bigger thing on this is what... Alex said in his take is, is something I agree with. It is when he says it is human nature to want to win, to get vengeance, to bring justice to the guilty, to blame someone, anyone. I think that the biggest miscarriages in justice today happen because of that feeling. Um, one of the things Dorothy and I watch a lot of on TV are like crime documentary shows and things like that. We watched one recently where a guy was convicted of, of murder. He got a life sentence, not a capital conviction. Um, but there wasn't a shred of evidence against this guy. Other than the fact that he was at the place where it happened, by the way, he had been working there for like over 10 years, and that he had left and come back, which he never said he didn't. That was the entire, there was not a shred of physical evidence. There was no knowledge of any kind of animosity between him and the other person. There was an accusation that he was double dipping on the time clock, and maybe this lady figured it out, but there was no evidence of that, including no evidence that he actually double dipped ever on the time clock. Um, it was all crap. And, in fact, the evidence that was presented that he double-dipped on the time clock was presented at the end of the prosecution, like an adjunct at the end, and the defense couldn't even answer it. And, and 12 people sentenced this man to life in prison without a shred of physical evidence. None. Zero. And the family of the, of the person who was murdered feels like justice has been done, and they just have this loathing hatred for this man, even though there's not a shred of evidence. 
our justice system could use some work. And when you have, for instance, the amount of physical evidence in the O.J. Simpson trial, but a high-priced attorney gets a guy off, and then another attorney can't present a, a reasonable defense, apparently, when there is no evidence, shows a travesty of injustice. And it shows, shows that, in many cases, money buys not guilty. It really does. Karma came back in that Simpson thing, but for those that aren't familiar with it, let me tell you the physical evidence that existed in the Simpson murder trial. A trail of blood leading from the crime scene to O.J. Simpson's vehicle, uh, and then his vehicle to his house, and out of his vehicle uh, into the drain of his tub with, with the DNA of... <clears throat> Excuse me, bad throat there. With the DNA, DNA of all three of the two victims and O.J. Simpson himself in that trail of blood, and yet we did not get a conviction there because of charismatic defense attorneys, I guess. And at the same time, a, a lustful vengeance mentality often leads to inappropriate accusations and sometimes inappropriate convictions. And this is where I say it comes down for you on a practical purpose. Never say shit to the police without an attorney. That's as blunt as I can be about it. I would actually say it probably makes sense for all of us to videotape ourselves saying, in the event that I ever feel even remotely possibly accused of a crime, it is my intention that I shall never speak to the police without counsel as it is my constitutional right, and then put that somewhere far away. Make sure there's some way it can be verified that it was done in the past. And then if you ever end up in that situation, give that to your attorney. Uh, and that way you'll have the confidence that when they say, well, you know, if you don't answer us, we have reason to suspect you or some other bullshit. You know, you look guilty if you don't cooperate and that shit. You know, to say, hey, look, I am happy to talk to you guys with counsel. And I, I think that's what we all have to do because a lot of times these cases that are highly circumstantial are made using things that were said. In the case that we're talking about, the one that Dorothy and I saw recently, the guy's wife was at home asleep. She has She's deaf in one ear, and she thought he came home for one reason, and he actually said he came home for another. And it was that thing, that was the only thing in his story that didn't add up. And if both of them would have just kept their mouth shut, not spoken without an attorney, that would have never even happened. Just saying, that's, that's you know a lesson from the past still here today. Time for Monday's prepper scenario. I figure we're really into the, the, the full show here at this point because this was a complicated one I gave you last week. So last week's scenario was somehow you've screwed up and you're in a bad situation. You're in an alleyway with two men in front of you and two behind you. You do not have your gun for whatever reason. Anything else you keep in your EDC can be used here, but again, you have no gun. The men are approaching from both sides. They're definitely, they definitely mean you harm. You outnumbered, you know it, what do you do? We had a lot of people with a lot of different things. One, A lot of people said, take out your phone and dial 911. Uh, I guess if they're really far apart, that could be done, and the phone could be on speaker in your pocket or something, just so you can try to get some help, but no, help's not coming. Uh, but it's not a terrible idea, but you probably don't have time. Just saying. Um, I am almost always in the possession of a knife and pepper spray, and I would try to deploy those only as needed, but they would definitely both be usable. Eh. The truth here is it's a trick scenario because no matter how this occurs, even if that exact scenario occurs, you've got two guys behind you, two guys in front of you, and you're in, a, you're in an alleyway where you don't have a way out, right? So you, you, you're shielded by buildings on both sides, so you can't duck out the side. It, it, that same scenario is going to be different every time it happens. 
the size of the attackers, how far away they are, the method of their approach, are they paired up? I mean, I look at it this way. I'm not a fast runner, but I can get around you. I'm going to extract myself from that position as quickly as possible. I'm not going to give them the cover. If I have to, I'm going to take somebody out with a shoulder check on the way past them. Uh, but I'm not saying I'm, that's what I'm going to do because I don't know the situation. Um, it would definitely be the case that if, if there was uh, the, the situation lined up right, if you can blind a couple of them with, with pepper spray, great. Uh, a knife is something I would pull as a last-ditch defensive method only. And for multiple reasons, one, until you put your hands on me, I can't justify it uh, in a court of law. Uh, number two, it is most effective if you don't know I have it. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. And at the point that there's a hand on me, I'm, I'm, I'm severing a freaking tendon on a bicep or something like that. Uh, and, and using that. So the, the big key here is the smart thing to do would be, number one, do not show fear. Number two, move with a purpose. Number three, the direction you're heading is probably the direction you keep heading. If you turn back, you, you, you're almost triggering the predatory response. Look like you're willing to throw down, but don't look too aggressive at the same time. And then you have to judge the response. right? So it's clear that they've kind of boxed you in there, but most predators haven't made a final decision yet. And as, as you move, they move. And one way or another, what you need to do is extricate yourself from that scenario. So you need to move through the attackers. If they attempt to grab you, then you use whatever defense you can. And some people said, like, I'm older, I can't fight. I'm uh, Bite, gouge eyes, chew, scratch, claw, grab onto things and yank. Ladies, men always have something that you don't. And if you pull on it really hard and twist, it does result in the release of you. But there's no good answer to this scenario. The, the right answer is avoid this in the first place, which I, could, I didn't let you do. I put you into it. So once you're into it, you have to fight. You have, to, you, you have two choices, fight or run. You cannot negotiate in this situation. right? You can move towards, and if they start to talk to you, you can keep moving, paying attention to what's going on, and possibly respond in a way that deflates the situation. But you can't stop and wait for them to advance on you. You've got to move, and you've got to move with purpose, and you've got to let your gut take you forward with where to go. And I can defend myself reasonably well, but four-on-one is a bad situation. And it's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the number where it becomes increasingly unlikely that even if you're a better fighter than each of the individuals, you're still done. There's a lot you can do with two. There's quite a bit you can do with three. Four, you've got all your avenues of egress shut off, and whenever you're engaged with one, you have a problem from the other. That's also why I picked that number. So the real answer here is to have your situational awareness to a, a level where you do not let this happen. And part of why I gave you this scenario last week is to make it real so that your situational awareness will switch on. And when you're in areas where you're unfamiliar with what's going on around you, you look for areas that allow this type of thing to occur because predators do, and don't enter those areas. In other words, in the words of the wise Frank Sharp Jr., don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people, and you'll probably stay alive. Anyway, this Monday's prepper scenario, totally different, very timely, and it's not really a scenario as it happened to you. It would be how do you prepare for what's going on, and it is. 
somehow you've screwed up and you're in a bad situation. You're in. Uh, I'm sorry. That is last week's event. I'm sorry. Uh, this week's event is look at Buffalo, New York, and the surrounding areas right now. First, they were hit with about eight feet of snow. Now, as the melt comes, flooding is probable. During this event, no help could be sent in. Frankly, the melt might be a disaster unto itself, but it's also a blessing. What eight feet of when, when there's eight feet of snow, there really isn't many places to push it out of the way to. In such an event, you will likely be stuck inside your home for at least a week. If the power goes out, cold weather is a big problem. Regardless of where you live, how would you personally prepare for this event? And this is not just all the basics. Let me explain a few things. So in There are pictures all over your Facebook right now of people's like windows caved in from the weight of the snow. So not only can't they get out, their their windows couldn't handle the pressure of the snow up against the windows. Eight feet to get that into your head. Most standard roofs in houses that aren't like a raised ceiling are around eight foot. So if you're in a house or a building right now that's got about a standard roof height, look up. That's the snow, and there's places where it was higher. I've I've seen pictures second story windows with the snow halfway up the window, okay. So the whole thing about like help can't get to you. Some people said, why doesn't the CAC team use this as their first disaster response? Can't get there. Can't get there. And if you if you're plowing this, where do you plow it to? Think about a road. Think about plows trying to open up a road, and think about eight feet of snow, not just in the road but on the sides of the road. I don't care if you have a dozer. Where's it going to go? If you push it out of the way. You create 16-foot embankments by doubling the height. So there's a certain amount of removal of the snow that you have to wait for God to do it. All right, now the the warm weather and rain is coming in and melting the snow, and when eight foot of snow melts, you get flooding. But at least you can get in. If the power goes out, you've got a real problem. So how do you? How would you? I don't care if you live in Florida. I want you to imagine. For one reason or another, you have to relocate to a place like Buffalo, where this is a potential problem. What steps do you take to prepare for this all the time? And when the forecast starts coming in, hey, it's coming. What last week, you know, or last couple days steps do you take to really be ready for it when you know it's on the way? That's a real world scenario because, well, it's happening in the real world right now. Next up, I just want to say real quick thank you to you guys who have been supporting uh, the crowdfunding that we're doing for the Gen Ford project. I won't say anything other than this: we crossed ten thousand dollars this morning uh, in crowdfunding. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Next, real quick little announcement: Nine Mile Farm is officially a reality. What is Nine Mile Farm? Well, it's where I live. Yep, ninemile.farm is the website of our little farmstead where we sell eggs and other stuff now officially. Even though we haven't sold any yet, we have a marketing plan in place. We have the site up. Uh, we have a whole whole bunch of stuff there about what we do and how we do it. And uh, it's really Dorothy's thing. I'm setting up all the web presence and stuff like that. But once that's done, uh, all I'm doing is advising and helping her to build this into something really cool. So... Just thought I would share that with you. That's been a long time coming. We now have enough production on the egg side to make it valid to where if we have customers and they come back next week, we probably have eggs again. Up until now, we've had more that we can use, but not enough to fund or to fuel the marketing side and, and to be able to keep up with demand. So we had to get that production level. We're there now, and we will start selling eggs as soon as somebody wants to buy some. And I have a little cool announcement that goes along with this. This applies to MSB members. I've been thinking, how can I add more value to the MSB? And I know a lot of you out there want your own business 
or you would like to get into the business side of farming or ranching or small-scale production or local production or what have you. So I'm going to start once a week doing four or five-minute videos for the MSB only. They will be placed in the MSB under the videos tab. Uh, just about what we're doing with the farm this week. Uh, not the so much the mechanics, like here's like how we're putting in a tree or something, but more like here's how it's going, here's how it's working, here's the marketing that we're trying, here's how we're utilizing things like giveaways and stuff like that, so that you can actually see the progression of the development of the business. I thought that would be a huge value add for the MSB, and thanks to Kelly Hernan, Her 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 always mess his name up, Kelly Hernan, Uh, who is uh, the guy that's doing all the video work for Perma Ethos? He came down here to film the Gen 4 and Kickstarter for me, and he set up my office with like these big glowing balls and lights and everything and a camera permanently mounted. All I pretty much have to do is flip a switch, turn the camera on, speak into the microphone, and then when I'm done, coil the mic up, yank the card out, upload it, and I'm done. So the fact that I can do it that quickly lets me bring some video content, you know, frequent video content back to the MSB. We were doing, like, the Homestead updates when Joe was here, but without Joe here, it's too much work. I, I don't have the time to add that to what I'm already doing. But thanks to Kelly, uh, we are now ready to rock again with some more, like, fresh weekly video content for the MSB. So been thinking about the MSB. That's another reason to consider joining. So with that, let us get back into your emails and uh, get into the first one of the day. The first one is a, a gardening, permaculture, soil improvement question from Jesse in Nebraska. It says, Jack, can I use refined white sugar instead of horticultural molasses uh, for improving my soil? I'm having trouble finding a solid answer. Well, the answer is, yeah, you could. And it's not going to hurt anything. It's just not as good. Molasses, it generally horticultural molasses, is not from sugarcane, by the way. It's usually from beets. It can be. But most horticultural molasses today comes from, is a, a product of beet, fermented beets, fermented beet sugar, actually, uh, that includes all the molasses components of it. And therefore, it has a lot of trace elements in it, in addition to the sugar that the bacteria and microbes in the soil can use to reproduce. And on top of that, it actually is a reasonable source of nitrogen. So it does more than just provide sugar for your microorganisms. Um, my statement, though, is there's not really a big reason to substitute one for the other. Some people say, well, I can't find horticultural molasses. I don't think you're looking very hard. Almost any feed store or garden store is going to have it, and if you don't see it, ask for it, and they can probably get it for you. Um, you don't. All, you also do not have to use the dried form of it. I like the dried form of it, but it's not the only option that you have. So it is a little bit harder to find great big bags of horticultural molasses online that you can order, but I'm sitting on Amazon.com right now, and I see a gallon of liquid horticultural molasses uh, for $26.97, It would be at your house in two days after you ordered it, and uh, it's on Prime. So if you have an Amazon Prime member, the shipping would be free. Pretty cool. Um, now, well, at $26, $27 for a gallon sounds like a lot of money, but it's not really. And the reason it's not is this is a concentrate that you dilute at about three tablespoons to the gallon of water. And it does a great job. I use it all the time. I also use the crumbly stuff, but I use the liquid a lot. And uh, you can also use it as a fertilizer, but as a pure soil amendment, at three tablespoons to the gallon, we start out with 256 tablespoons to a gallon. That's how, so that's how many tablespoons are in there. And if we divide 
256 by 3, we get 85.3. Call it 85 gallons. 80, so one jug of that stuff makes 85 gallons. So I'd be hard-pressed to fall back to using white cane sugar um, as a soil amendment when I could get 200, what, 85 gallons of this stuff for 20 bucks. I mean, if we, if we really want to you know, keep doing the math and figure that out, The, the concentrate makes the cost of the actual product that you put on the ground about 30 cents a gallon. And in an area, for instance, recently we amended an area that's about 20 feet by 60 feet. I think I used four gallons. No, I probably used six because I went heavy on it. So $1.80 to do an area that big. That's bigger than most people's gardens. Um, so if you're trying to amend acres, yeah, I would try to find, well, no, I would, I would even say you could do an acre for 25 bucks. 85 gallons is way more than enough to amend an acre. Um, and you know, I would probably be doing a compost tea with that added to it at that point. But yeah, I mean, I would, I would stick to that. There's also, I wanted to talk about some, maybe some other unconventional amendments to soil, especially when you're sheet mulching that you can add. A great one we talked about last week is coffee. Coffee grinds are an incredible soil amendment. They feed the hell out of worms. They are a little bit acidic, but that's good if you're in an alkaline environment especially. Uh, and you can get them for free by the, the shit ton, basically. If you go two or three Starbucks, uh, usually you know people say, well, you can ask them to save them for it. Usually if you go in there and do it, yeah, you coffee grinds I can have today. They'll go, hold on a second. I'll come out with a bag that weighs a lot because they're soaking wet. But they'll, they'll give, give them to you. and you, So you can get those, spread those out when you're sheet mulching, and, and put that under your sheet mulch. Cornmeal, cottonseed meal. Yeah, I know they're not great things for your diet, uh, or corn gluten. All of these things, they just feed, they're like, they're like we call, Nick Ferguson and I were calling them at the workshop, worm chum. Right? If you bring worms in, they'll do so much work for you. And that's something that, so if that type of stuff is underneath there, and if I wanted to like gild the lily with this, like if I wanted to make like super soil with sheet mulching, what might I lay down? Wet and dry molasses. And then uh, a meal. And I mean, you could do, you could do chicken feed. A bag of cheap chicken feed, right? Just make sure the chickens don't know it's there. Any kind of a grain meal, like laid down with that, or cotton seed meal, or anything like that, has this incredible nutrient drop to there. Uh, and then milk. Maybe two to three gallons of milk sprayed across the whole area. That might smell, but it won't when you cover it. And then a great thick layer of leaves, like mixed hardwood leaves, fall, leaf fall leaves. If you can run them over with a tractor or a mower, so much the better, but you can just lay them down. Then a layer of compost, about a half inch of compost. Then a layer of straw, then another layer of compost, another layer of wood chips. Um, if you do that now, you go to plant in that soil next spring, you won't believe the results. It'll, it'll kind of blow you away what that soil looks like. Now, can you do that across an acre? No, but you can build anything from a garden to these small food forests with that approach. And think about this. If you had an acre to do like that, and you did this with one-twentieth of an acre, right? And so to get to get that in your head, what is the twentieth of an acre? Well, let's, let's do a tenth acre. It's a little bit 
bigger, and it's not that big. If you wanted to do uh, an acre in complete sheet mulching over a five-year period and you did a, a tenth of an acre a year, twice a year, uh, that wouldn't be that big to do. And you'd be looking at roughly about 50 to 55 feet by 50 to 55 feet, so somewhere in a 50 by 50 range. And that's not that big. If you think about it, I mean, 50 feet sounds pretty big, but it's not. Um, 50 feet is uh, roughly, what, 16 yards? So 16 steps by 16 steps, an area that big. You sheet mulch that in the spring uh, to get ready for a fall planting. And in fall, you, sh you sheet mulch another area of about that size. And you just keep doing that. Uh, if you want to go more of a circular pattern, a tenth of an acre is about a 37-foot radius circle. So that's, you know, if you were going to do like maybe an island approach. And that's actually a great approach for permaculture establishment. You do like a, a tree in the center and you build a guild around it and you ex just extend it. You do multiple of those and you slowly connect it over time. But I mean, in you know, you could do uh, in, in a few years easily, you could sheet mulch an acre if that's what you really wanted to do. And it would be pretty impressive by the time it was done. For most of us that are out there and we're establishing food forest systems and, and, and sustainable perennial systems, you, you know, usually you're looking more at something along the size of a tenth to a quarter of an acre uh, per unit, per each clump of, of design. So it's one of the most low-input ways to do things. You don't need swells. You don't need hula culture beds. It's not that either one of those things are wrong. It's just that the approach of building soil works. And if you're sheet mulching that deep, you get a lot of resiliency there. And it's also an opportunity to put in irrigation with very shallow trenching. If you go in and trench two inches deep for all your irrigation lines, and then you build two inches of soil on top of that, you end up with a four-inch deep trench in the end. You end up with this, this kind of hilled approach. Works really, really well, so consider it. And again, when you're trying to find horticultural molasses and you say you can't find it, Amazon.com, buy it in liquid form, and you can make you know 80-odd gallons out of a gallon. Moving on, this comes in from Andy in Georgia who says, Sorry to bombard you this week, Jack, but I thought you might find this interesting. You always say the government is run by oligar the oligarchy and they pay, pay both sides. Here's some pretty good proof written out. Short version, each dollar spent lobbying returns $750 on average. I want that freaking return on my money, so let's go lobby someone. So let me read this. This is on Influence Explorer, and it's called Fixed Fortunes. Between 2007 and 2012, 200 of America's most politically active corporations spent a combined $5.8 billion on federal lobbying and campaign contributions. A year-long analysis by the Sunlight Foundation suggests, however, that what they gave pales in comparison to the same corporations got uh, back. $4.4 trillion in federal businesses and support. That figure, more than $4.3 of the federal government paid the nation's 50 million Social Security recipients over the same period, is the result of an unprecedented effort to quantify the less examined side of campaign finance equation. Do political donors get something in return for what they give? Four years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court suggested the answer to that question was no. Corporate spending to influence federal elections would not give rise to corruption or the appearance of corruption, the majority wrote in a landmark Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision. Sunlight decided to test that premise by examining the influence of its political res potential results 
on federal decision makers over six years, three before three years before the 2010 Citizens United decision thereafter. The data below is the table representing the summary totals involved. All data is downloadable and is licensed under Creative Commons by NCSA license. By downloading the data, you're agreeing to the terms, blah, 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 blah. Uh, for instance, the number one contributor on here is Goldman Sachs. Oh, during the 2007 to 2012 period, by the way. Uh, Bank of America is number two. AT&T, number three. Honeywell, number four. J.P. Morgan Chase, number five. Microsoft Corporation, number six. Comcast, number seven. Deloitte, number eight. Lockheed Martin, number nine. Morgan Stanley. I'll just stop reading the numbers and just read you like the top 25. Uh, Morgan Stanley was number 10. I'll go down to 25 just so you can see who owns you. Uh, Boeing, PricewaterhouseCoopers, General Electric, Verizon, Citigroup, UPS, Northrop Grumman, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Raytheon, New York Life Insurance, Coke Industries, spelled with a K for those that don't know that, uh, American Crystal Sugar, Ernst Young, Blackstone Group, and Google. I might as well read you five more just because of who's on there. Uh, Chevron, Oracle, Aflac, Pfizer, and Exxon. Followed by Berkshire Hathaway, Wells Fargo, Walmart, General Dynamics. You just see how this goes? Right? I like to keep reading. McKenison Group, Home Depot, Credit Suisse Group, Union Pacific Corporation, Amgen, CSX Corp, FedEx Corporation, Altria Group, News Corp, United Technologies, Exelon Corp, Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance, Marriott International, Norfolk Southern, Anheuser-Busch InBev, Merck and Company, and USAA, followed by Cisco Systems. I could just keep going. These are the people that own you. Now, let me explain something to you guys from a business perspective. As a business person, if you come to me and say, Mr. Spirico, we would like your business to make an investment in this thing. Well, I don't care if it's marketing or advertising. I don't care what it is. And I say, right, what is the ROI expectation on that? And you say, for every dollar you put into this, We can quantifiably demonstrate that you will receive back $750 in revenue or savings or one way or another, a quantifiable reality that every dollar I put out puts $750 back into my organization. Do you know how much money I want to give you? All of it. I want to give you every dollar I can scrape up because the return is so fabulous. There's no reason for me not to do it. Your challenge is to convince me that it works, but here we know it works. The, this is a kind of a small blog that this is on and whatever, but the data here is incontrovertible. The data here is all from public data. It is all 100% verifiable, and the list goes on and on, and there's 200 companies. And for all the hell they get, you know who's at the bottom of the list? Halliburton. Then Cargill, right? U.S. Steel's 195. Let's look at some other people here that are toward the bottom. Bears 183. It's still a lot of money <laughs> that these guys knock in there. But I want you to think about this again. How much money did all of these corporations put in during this time, 2007 to 2012? Right, so five years. They put in 5.8 billion dollars. That's their investment. The return was 4.4 trillion. You think you'd lobby if you were one of them? Of course you would. And do you think that you can in any way tell me that your Congress isn't bought and paid for with that kind of a return to the people giving them the money? This is why when you change the cast of characters in the play, 
the result of the play, the abolition of your individual rights continues unabated. No, one side is not headed at the cliff faster than the other. Both of them are attaching chains to your body. All they're promising to do is the side that you oppose will put heavier chains on those people. Your chains will be light, and their chains will be heavy. And if you don't elect us, they will put their heavy chains on you, and they will put their light chains on the other people, and people actually buy into this and believe it, right? This is, this is part of why the party due system is real, and if you've never taken time to look at Patron, Patrick Barron's site, Defining the Machine, uh, dot com, do it today. But I will put a link to this article, and I will put a link to Patrick's site, Defining the Machine, uh, in the show notes as well. Next up today, uh, I have an email here from, who is this from? CJ in Vermont, and, uh, said, hasn't heard you mention this. Sugata Mirita Ted 2013 winning talk. Uh, at three minutes in, he says, I'm not going to tell you what he says, uh, cause I'm going to play some of it for you. And it explains how we got here, uh, and why we should abandon it. So I'm going to play for you about four minutes of this gentleman's TED talk, and I'll put a link to where you can hear the rest of it. And I will come back with my thoughts on the uh, the concept that he's speaking on, which you will hear about here. I'll tell you what it is. It's the education system. And he says, schools as we know them are obsolete. Here's his thoughts on why that's the case. What is going to be the future of learning? I do have a plan, but in order for me to tell you what that plan is, um, I need to tell you a little story which kind of sets the stage. I tried to look at where did uh, the kind of learning we do in schools, where did it come from? And, you know, you can look far back into the past, but if you look at present-day schooling the way it is, it's quite easy to figure out where it came from. It came from about 300 years ago. And it came from the last and the biggest of the empires on this planet. Imagine trying to run the show, trying to run the entire planet without computers, without telephones, with data handwritten on pieces of paper and traveling by ships. But the Victorians actually did it. What they did was amazing. They created a global computer made up of people. It's still with us today. It's called the bureaucratic administrative machine. <laughs> In order to have that machine running, you need lots and lots of people. They made another machine to produce those people. The school. The schools would produce the people who would then become parts of the bureaucratic administrative machine, they must be identical to each other. They must know three things. They must have good handwriting because the data is handwritten. They must be able to read and they must be able to do multiplication, division, addition and subtraction in their head. They must be so identical that you could pick one up from New Zealand and ship them to Canada and he would be instantly functional. The Victorians were great engineers. They engineered a system that was so robust that is still with us today. 
continuously producing identical people for a machine that no longer exists. The empire is gone. So what are we doing with that design that produces these identical people? And what are we going to do next if we ever are going to do anything else with it? So that's a pretty strong comment there. I said schools as we know them now, they're obsolete. I'm not saying they're broken. It's quite fashionable to say that the education system is broken. It's not broken. It's wonderfully constructed. It's just that we don't need it anymore. It's outdated. What's the kind of jobs that we have today? Well, the clerks are the computers. They're there in thousands in every office. And you have people who guide those computers to do their clerical jobs. Those people don't need to be able to write beautifully by hand. They don't need to be able to multiply numbers in their heads. They do need to be able to read. In fact, they need to be able to read discerningly. But that's today. But we don't even know what the jobs of the future are going to look like. We know that people will work from wherever they want, whenever they want, in whatever way they want. How is present-day schooling going to prepare them for that world? Well, I bumped into this whole thing completely by accident. I used to teach people how to write computer programs in New Delhi 14 years ago. And right next to where I used to work, there was a slum. And I used to think, how, how on earth are those kids ever going to learn to write computer programs? Or are they, should they not? At the same time, we also had lots of parents, rich people, who had computers, and who used to tell me, you know, my son, um, I think he's gifted because, you know, he does wonderful things with computers. And my daughter, oh, surely she, she's, you know, extra intelligent. So I suddenly figured that how come all the rich people are having these extraordinary gifted children? <laughs> what did the poor do wrong? <laughs> I made a hole in the, in the boundary wall of the slum next to my office and stuck a computer inside it just to see what would happen if I gave a computer to children who never would have one, didn't know any English, didn't know what the internet was. The children came running in, it was three feet off the ground, and they said, what is this? And I said, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. So <laughs> they said, um, why have you put it there? I said, just like that. And they said, can we touch it? I said, if you wish to. And I went away. About eight hours later, we found them browsing and teaching each other how to browse. So I said, but that's impossible. Because, you know, how, how is it possible? They don't know anything. My colleagues said, no, it's a simple solution. One of your students must have been passing by, showed them how to use the mouse. So I said, yeah, that's possible. So I repeated the experiment. I went 300 miles out of Delhi into a really remote village where the chances of a, you know, a passing software development engineer <laughs> were, was, was, was very little. <laughs> I repeated the experiment there. There was no place to stay, so I stuck my computer in, I went away, came back after a couple of months, found kids playing games on it. When they saw me, they said, we want a faster processor and a better mouse. <laughs> All right, so I ended up playing six minutes of that because it's just so damn good. And uh, there's another, uh, what, 16 minutes of it to be listened to that uh, you can actually watch the video and see his PowerPoint and everything else goes with it. This was the 2013 winning TED Talk for the whole year. And with good reason, because it makes some really, really valid points. 
I really like his analogy that we are building parts for a machine that no longer exists. We're creating identical individuals. And you wouldn't even do that for a machine that does exist. So let's say we started up a car factory. All right, we're going to make cars. We're not going to make all differentials, let alone all sprockets and cogs that go inside differentials or gearing mechanisms that go inside differentials. We have to make all these different parts just to make the differential. Then the differential has to have basically an axle housing to go into, and then that has to go to wheels, and those need brakes, and we would build all these different parts so the car can do its job. And we certainly wouldn't just even use one material. So we build a car, we don't build it all out of steel. There's steel, there's leather, there's plastic, there's rubber. Each piece does what it's supposed to do to make the whole machine run. And we are now building single parts for a machine that doesn't even exist anymore. It would be like we're building uh, just wheels for horseless carriages. That's what the modern education system is. What I really loved about what Sergata says here is that It's the, the system isn't broken, it's obsolete. See, even educators like to say the system's broken. Do you know why? Do you? Think about it. It's a pretty simple answer. If it's broken, we can fix it. And if we can fix it, all we need is money. See, it's just the underpaid teachers and underappreciated this and old books that. And we need more money. And if we just have more money, it would be better. But you're fixing a, an obsoleted machine. Okay, There's all kinds of cool antiques out there that people invest a lot of money in restoring so that we can look at it and go, wow, that's how you used to whatever. Wash clothes before there was electricity. But I bet in your house you have a washing machine. So we have an archaic machine in the public education system and largely the education system as a whole all over the world. And then Sergata's other inference, and this is completely true, and if you listen to the whole thing, you'll hear all about it. Children place it in an environment that gives them what they need to learn will choose to learn on their own. They'll learn whatever they want. They'll learn what they're good at. And let me tell you something. The kid that becomes the next mathematical wizard, right? The next guy that, that is, you know, uh, you know, Big Bang level th uh, smart, right? Big Bang Theory level smart, like the real versions of those genius guys, right? that's going to sit there on a chalkboard and work out all this stuff and prove some kind of cosmic constant or something like that, he's going to do that without being taught common core math or, here, memorize your, uh, your, your, you know, your times tables and what have you. And I'm not even saying that some of those basic things are things we should still be encouraging kids to learn, but I'm saying those that truly excel in a field are going to excel in that field, it's not like, oh, because we put them in school and taught them dumbed-down bullshit, they became brilliant. See, have you ever asked yourself that when people say, well, every child can become brilliant? You go, wait a minute, no, they can't. No, they can't. Not every person is the same. Man, I really recommend you guys watch a show for me, uh, a movie from the 90s called Harrison Bergeron. And, and that, that whole, it's from a Kurt Vonnegut story, and it's all about trying to make everybody equal. And boy, that'll scare the shit out of you if you watch that and look at what's going on in modern day society. But people are not created equal. That's one of the fundamentals. One of the fundamentals of the story of Harrison Bergeron. All men are not created equal. And in the movie, which is kind of a B-level movie, and you can find it on YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the show notes today, too. The government seeks to make everybody equal. Oh, sounds familiar. But they really are using handicapping tools and stuff like that. But the reality is you can't do it. S certain people are exceptional people, and I believe everybody's exceptional in a certain way. 
And we have to free people to find that way. Now, basic reading, basic math, basic understanding, cognitive function, uh, basically taking a trivium approach to education of grammar, rhetoric, and logic. All of these things I think are valuable. But learning, you know, beautiful, flowing, cursive, you know, writing, which I still can't do. I'm not artistic. I got like, we, I don't know if kids even get graded in this anymore. When I was in school, we got graded in handwriting. I used to get D's, right? I would pull my whole GPA down because my grade in handwriting was low. It's like, I don't care. You can read it. Well, it's not, you know, flowing enough, and this should have an arc, and I don't care. I'm not going to care. I'm not going to pretend I do care. That's how I felt as a kid. How do you think I feel as an adult? The whole world is shifting while we cling to old world realities. We have an educational system that at its core is 200 years old. Almost 200 years old. Call it 140 to go back to, you know, the Prussian installation, the Prussian system in this country. But in reality, the whole concept of everybody goes in a room, everybody sits in line, everybody listens to the teacher, does what they say, follows instructions, is almost as old as this country itself. Not everybody went to schools like that, but the schools that were put in place, that's what they were. You go to a place, somebody's in charge, you do what you're told, you sit in a straight line, you follow instructions, you're given assignments, you complete them, you're graded on them, etc. Okay? We don't use computers anymore that are 10 years old. They're considered obsolete and outdated. I had an IBM XT. Kind of wish I never got rid of it. As, you know, as a, as a, what do you call it? Uh, 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 an antique, right? Okay? But I had an IBM XT from the 80s. At its time, it was a cutting edge computer. Today, it's not considered worthy of, of, of weighing down a desk and keeping it from blowing over in a storm. And yet we cling to a model that's two centuries old when it comes to what we say is the most important thing we can do, the education of our children. How can it be so important that we don't evolve it? We just keep making it. We, we, we're going to work on it. It's broken. We need to repair it. No, we need to obsolete it. It actually is, it has been obsoleted. It has been obsoleted. In fact, you know, on the Common Core thing, I have another little side story for you that came in like through Facebook. And it's basically uh, a Chinese-born uh, individual who's now a U.S. Uh, professor. Uh, in his view on Common Core, I'd like to read this to you. It's on the Reason.com blog um, on the hit-and-run component. Common Core will make schools in the U.S. more like China, and that's not a good thing. One of the supposed selling points of the Common Core standards is that they're internationally benchmarked in order to make U.S. education system more competitive with better systems in other countries. Implement Common Core and the U.S. students will catch up to Chinese students in no time, or so proponents of national standards claim. Even if that's true, it may not be a good thing. The New York Times recently published a fascinating interview with Yong Zhao, a professor of education at the University of Oregon. Zhao was born in China, and unlike many American intellectuals, he does not think the U.S. Uh, should emulate China. Quote, if the United States and the rest of the West are concerned about being overtaken by China, the best solution is to avoid becoming China, he said. Well, that's that's pretty astute, isn't it? It's pretty obvious, unless you're... You know, I don't know, a big government liberal or something like that. Uh, Chinese schools stamp out individuality and make kids spend all their time preparing for exams that are focused on narrow intelligence. The procedure, uh, the, this produces fewer creative and entrepreneurial people, which is precisely what the authoritarian national government of China wants, according to Zhao. Zhao wanted, uh, warned that the, this, the kind of standardization offers, offered by Common Core is in, in danger of a free cult, 
is a danger to a free culture and a free economy. Relevant excerpts from the interview are below. Question. You said that traditional Chinese education actively harms children. How? Answer. It basically ignores children's uniqueness, interests, and passions, which is a homogenization. It forces them to spend almost all the time preparing for tests, leaving little time for social and physical activities. It also places them under tremendous stress through intense competition, which can damage their confidence and lower their self-esteem. Question, is the United States becoming like China in education? If so, how? Answer, the U.S. has certainly become more like China in recent years. The No Child Left Behind Act has increased the stakes and usage of standardized testing. President Obama's race to the top and other initiatives continue to push testing into schools and classrooms by associating test scores with teacher evaluation. The Common Core State Standards Initiative has been pushed to many states, creating a de facto national standards in math and English and language arts. So American education today has become more centralized, standardized, and test-driven with an increasingly narrow education experience with a, uh, which characterizes Chinese education. Question, will this damage America? I believe, answer, I believe so, because the narrow education experience that is centrally dictated, uniformly programmed, and constantly monitored by standardized tests is unlikely to value individual talents, respect students' interests and passions, cultivate creativity or entrepreneurial thinking, or foster the development of non-cognitive capacities. But it is the diversity of talents, passion-driven creativity and entrepreneurship, and social-emotional well-being of individuals that are needed for the future economy. So here you have a professor um, that was born in China, grew up with the Chinese educational system, came to America living in Oregon, and you have an educator who is based in Delhi, India, and uh, has traveled all over the world helping children learn, and they're basically selling the same thing that I've been telling you. This shit doesn't work, and it does not have the individual approach necessary to develop individuals to their highest level of capability. All right, And I want you to understand that. That should be the goal of education. The goal of education should not include the phrase to make sure that every child can blank All right, in the way that it's generally done. You know, to make sure that every child can pass an exam of basic proficiency in algebra by the time they graduate high school. Some people need that. Some people need more. Some people need less. To try to force everybody into that square hole, right, and pound them in if they're a round peg into the square hole, doesn't do anybody any good. It frustrates the teacher, it frustrates the student, and even if the student succeeds and gets the grade that they're supposed to get, what does it do for them in life? See, my belief is that the goal of education for every individual should be to help that individual realize their highest level of proficiency and the things that they have the greatest interest in and love for. That's it. That's it. Now, everybody needs to learn how to read. And if you want to learn more about the things you have the greatest passion and love for, and I give you the basics of how to read, you will become a better reader. And if I free you to read about the things that you have passion for and love for and talent for, you will read far more then if I force you to read shit you don't have an interest in, have no passion for, don't care about, are never going to use in your life. All right? So each individual, this is where I think, see, this is where I think the education system lies with the truth. Every child is truly exceptional and can achieve amazing things in our system through a higher level of education. See, even that statement, like, 
by ensuring that every child has a proper education, we ensure that every child has the opportunity to achieve great things in life, right? That would be something the educational system would market to you, okay? It's not untrue. It's just that their version of education is the problem. If we truly freed people to do that which they're exceptional at, imagine what might happen in the world. We don't need more people to do more jobs that don't exist. We need people to come out and create new companies, new opportunities, new things. The, the concept that, you know, we need to have, like, the, the, whole, the whole concept is really kind of ass backwards. We're creating employees with a growing global population where the number of required employees is in decline. We have more people getting more education than ever before for less jobs than have ever existed in relation to the total number of human beings walking around alive and yet to be born. Your jobs are being replaced with technology and automation, and they should be. They really should be. You know, But people say, well, it's terrible that all these people in this that have this job of packing boxes lost their jobs because now, even though they're all different sizes, a robot can use a visual acuity sensor and pack a box better and faster than a human being. You know what? When I first moved to Texas, I had a job packing boxes in a warehouse. It was about 120 degrees in the summer. All I did, nine hours a day, every day, was pack boxes. Okay, I had a quota, and if I didn't pack a certain number of dollars... I failed my quote and I was in danger of losing my job. I worked my ass off and I made about, I think, $7.50 an hour at the time. If I remember right at the time, minimum wage was like four bucks, four and a quarter, something like that. It would have been the early 90s, right? So before it went up again or whatever. And uh, so I was making a few bucks over minimum wage. I was grateful. Don't get me wrong. I was grateful to be able to find a job. But let's, let, let me ask you a question. Do you think for one minute the job fulfilled me and my mind and my ambitions and my passions? Do you think that it was a good job in reality in any way? Was it the kind of job you would want to have? If you say, well, you had a job, is it the kind of job you'd want your son to have or your daughter to have by the time they were 26 or 27 years of age? It was the kind of job you want. So let's 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 factor in you know today's minimum wage of seven twenty five an hour and uh, let's add four bucks to that so uh, eleven and a quarter let's run up twelve bucks an hour I'm gonna pay you twelve bucks an hour which is in today's money better money than I was making back then and I want you to work nine hours a day okay in in a warehouse in in with temperatures going up into the hundreds of degrees and by the way cold as shit in the winter just just to add that in there and all you're gonna do all day long is stand at the end of something that looks like a like a cash register at a supermarket, basically, but all industrial with rollers and everything, while a lady checks every single item that goes into the bill of materials. You're going to pack all this together, and you have to look at it, figure it out, get it in there. The Tetris interest lasts about a week before it wears off. And you get it all packed in there, and you put some extra packaging in there, you close it up, you put a big piece of tape on it, you label it, you write something on it, you set it aside, and you keep doing that. You do that every day, nonstop, all day. It's the only thing you do. Is that is that really a job you would want? And again, yes, I was grateful for the income and an opportunity. But in the end, is that a fulfilling job? The answer is no. So when we see technology and automation making a job like that job obsolete, Yes, it costs jobs, but it also takes a human being who was doing something completely unfulfilling in their life and says, there's no need for this to be done anymore. 
And I know that some people have a hard time kind of getting to the next step from there. But, well, then where do they start? What do they do? Well, the answer is if they were actually pursuing that which they love and have passion for and talent for, now by freeing up human beings to do those things, those things could be monetized. Those things could be made to have value. Those things, because in the, see, we're still thinking in at least, at very best, 1965 mentality. You need a job to have employment to get money. Where we live in a world with billions of people, and most of them now, except in the undeveloped world, are connected through digital means across the entire globe. And so in the past, if you did something artistic or creative, or you told stories or you wrote books or whatever it was, and you what you did was something that was really good, but you didn't have a publisher or somebody in your pocket, somebody to make you famous or some kind of access to the, the system, so to speak, you couldn't make a living. And in order to make a living, let's use an example as an author, and to be able to make a living that would be equivalent today of a $100,000 income back in the 1960s, whatever that would have been, you would have to make the publisher five to six times the money that they paid you. That's how they would take you. Okay. And that made it very much a formidable gate that was kept to keep people out of just that one example. And I'm not saying everybody should be a writer. I'm just saying that's an it's a good example. Or if you were a musician, you had to get on radio stations. You had to make the top 40 list. You had to get the right record label, what have you. And now both of those things can be taken to the 1,000 true fans model. So if we said that a median income for people in a developed world was about $35,000 a year, Okay, which I think is pretty reasonable. In fact, I think that's probably a low number if you take active working people that actually have real jobs. Um, and no offense to anybody that makes less than that. I, I don't mean it that. I'm just saying if we average out hardworking people that actually have real jobs, if we take away people that have part-time jobs, if we take away, because there's just, I don't care how much you make unless you make a really big hourly rate, You're just going to make less money because you work less hours. But if we took people with full-time careers, I think at least $35,000 is a medium income in the developed world, great. If I can get a 1,000 true fans out of that group, I can make about $100,000 plus a year in revenue if each of them will spend just one day's wages with me. Okay, This is a new reality. What is your school doing for your children to help them capitalize on that one individual reality? Just that one place that there's an opportunity. You know, well, my, my daughter wants to go into dance, and I don't think there's any real money in that. And I don't know, there's people that make money probably doing that that have, that have never actually been in a Broadway play. I'm not saying you shouldn't be if that's what you want to do. I'm just saying that there's ways to make everything that people do in such a way that it can create a value exchange with others. I think we could revamp the entire school system by making teachers compete for students. I think it should work this way. I think that, like, you and your kids should sit down and decide, like, well, one of the things I want to learn about is um, something I had a lot of passion for when I was a kid, reptiles and amphibians. I, I think we should, this year, in your coursework, you should pick a teacher that uh, does, uh, does uh, education on those types of animals because you like them and who knows what you could do with that. And then I think that there should be a directory of all the teachers with reviews, just like let teachers compete in the market, just like products on eBay do. Reviews, student responses, you know, what they got out of it, what they didn't get out of it. And I think you should be able to log into there and, like, 
you know, view that teacher teaching for 10 minutes, decide, yeah, look at the reviews from other students and go, yeah, you know what, I think this teacher resonates with me and I want to take this teacher's course. And then that student should pay, should student should pay, or the student's parents should pay for that one course. That course could be very inexpensive because that teacher can be selling it to thousands of people. Right? We develop technology where when the student has a question, they start typing the question. If that professor has ever answered that question before, there it is. They have it for tech support, for web hosting. We can't do it for education. Boom, and there's your teacher answering your question even though they answered that question five years ago. They're off creating new material for new students. I know teachers don't like this because you have to compete now. You have to be good. But I think you should be good at what you do if you're paid for it. I don't think you should be paid just because you ticked some qualification boxes and somebody hired you and then that you know entitles you to a set salary structure for the rest of your career unless you do something like rob a post office. Which many teaching jobs, I'm sorry if you don't agree, but that's the way they really are. And the only way the teachers are being held accountable at all is with the standardized testing regime, standardized testing regime, which we shouldn't be doing in the first place because it's counter to everything that I've said. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's no way this can work. Well, every great thing that changed society, people said wouldn't work before it was made to work. Tell me one that wasn't. Tell me something that didn't exist, a system, an invention, anything that didn't exist where the majority of people, when the idea was first conceived of, said, well, sure, we can do that. And then it was done, and then it made a major impact on society. The, the way this always works is, it'll never work, that can't work, we have to work with what we have, there's no reason to throw away the baby with the bathwater, blah, 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 till someone does it, and then someone does it again, and someone does it again, and it becomes incontrovertible. You can't argue with it anymore, and some people still do. And sooner or later, the market shifts society. That is what's coming to education. And why I am so ecstatic about it is I think we've gone over a, a, a critical mass at this point of multiple things. The awareness in people, the dissatisfaction with people about the system itself, and the enabling technologies. I think all three of those are converging to a point where this is going to begin to steamroll. And I really believe, I know people think I'm nuts on this, I really believe in 10 years, half of the public education sector will not have jobs. And if it's 15, I'd be surprised. But that would be the outside estimate that I would give you. It's going to just start coming and coming and coming and coming. And it's just, and there's going to be people trying to cling on to it. But I'll tell you what's really going to shift it. These millennials everybody's putting down, right? Some of these kids now that you would call a millennial... You know, born about 1995, so they really weren't born after the millennial date, but they've, they've grown up with the internet. They're the internet natives, right? Okay, so if you were born in 1995, you're like 19, 18, 19 years old right now, okay? You're about to start putting down roots. You're about to start having kids. These are the people that are going to be bringing up the next generation of children. Ten years out, these kids are putting their kids in kindergarten. They are going to be very open to things that many of you are very close to. When they hear, well, your kid can just stay home and go to school online, they're going to be like, well, duh, why wouldn't I do that? You're going to have the exact, see, this is what people don't get. Everybody looks at the people in charge and says, well, they'll never. I'll tell you what they'll never do. They'll never live forever and they'll never stay in charge forever. 
I'm not talking about the, the oligarchy families and shit like that. Now I'm talking about the individuals. They will grow old, they will retire, they will get sick, they will die, they will pass on, they will leave us. And this next wave is like your Gen Y and your millennials. These are all people that are very internet savvy, very tech savvy, very technology oriented. Would prefer to communicate with you by text message or by email or through Facebook or Instagram or even FaceTime on a tablet or a phone before they would prefer to get in a car, drive over to you and see you face to face. Okay? And they would prefer to speak to people who they like regardless of where they're located. See, I think that people don't understand the shift to the digital. They think, like, oh, all these kids just don't know how to get along anymore, and they don't know how to deal with people face-to-face in the real world. No, they're tired of dealing with assholes. See, and this is a unique thing about assholes. The, the, the word asshole is highly subjective when applied the way I am. There's the physical you know, body accoutrement, right? But when, you, when it comes to people that you meet and you go, that person's an asshole, Okay, there are people like that. I would meet that person and go, that person's an asshole. And you would meet that person and go, that person's not an asshole. I like him or her. And I go, you're nuts. You go, you're nuts. And then we like each other, right? We like each other, but we both have different opinions about this guy over here, right? And it creates this fractionalized tribal component to the digital world. Well, what the kids of today and the young people today are trying to tell you, and you don't understand it, is we are refusing. To interact with the people who do not share our values and therefore we do not like them. So if I find someone who shares my values in Australia and I live in Atlanta, I will choose to interact with the Australian versus my fellow Atlantan. And I will try to find people here. I mean, it's not like these people don't talk to each other in the real world. They've just grown beyond limiting themselves to that. And they're looking for common interest, common values, common language and that is your next generation and I've been guilty myself at times of thinking boy are we screwed because I've had some of these young people work for me and I'm like the work ethic's not there but you know what it is they don't really want to work for me that's what it's not that they don't like me right and it's not that they don't want to work for me individually they don't want to really work for anybody they're starting to say to themselves why should I lend my time and my talent and my effort to do something I really don't really want to do in the first place when I could do it a little bit differently and it might work out better for me if I just did it for myself? They're starting to get an independent contractor mentality. Now, unfortunately for them, what they've lost sight of is take a job for experience, gain from it, evolve it, and move forward. Many of them don't, you know, there's this disconnect. But whose fault is that? We didn't teach them that. We taught them, in general... My, my age bracket, 45-ish and older, taught the next generation the mentality of 1960 employment. Because even though we watched it change under our feet, that's what our parents, who were from the 1960s, taught us. So we've taught an invalid methodology for the modern world, and we have an education system absolutely chained to it. That's where we're at. And that's why it has to fail. It's not just good that it fails. It must fail. It cannot continue. And if you think it can, you know, other than in antique collections, how many old Buffalo Sharps rifles do you see around? How many horseless carriages do you see around? Have you seen any pyramids built lately? I mean, in the day, they were an engineering marvel. And if you had told an Egyptian 
during the construction of the Great Pyramids. One day, people will come and look at these in rubble and awe that somebody in our time frame even built something like this. But no one will ever build any again unless they're putting in something they'll call a casino for a gimmick. And it'll be made out of glass, not stone. They would have said you're insane. They would have said you're insane. And if you would have went back to 1920 America, into the belly of the steel mills, polystyrene had just been played around with in the 30s, I think is when they first made polystyrene. So let's go to the 30s. And said to the people in the steel industry, the majority of products in our nation, not long from now, will be built from rubber and plastics and polymers. Steel will go into decline and become somewhat of a second-rate industry in America that will laugh you out. But the steel industry couldn't remain the juggernaut that it was because too many other things that were better for construction came into play. Steel didn't go away. The education system will, will go away, but the education con concept won't go away. Education is like the steel. But the steel mill of old cannot exist today. The way they were run, the lack of safety, all the things that unions supposedly protect you from, they, they can't even function that way today. There's no need for it. The union side, because it just, it won't work. If you try to open one up, let's say you had a place, New Jersey stand, right? And they said, no more unions in New Jersey stand, right? Which would be the last place for it to happen. That's why I said it. And you set up a steel mill and started trying to recruit people to come work for your steel mill and said, it's going to be just like 1920. People will be dying, falling in and shit. It's going to be awesome. You wouldn't have anybody work for you. You wouldn't make any money, so it's, it's irrelevant. It's obsoleted. That's your education system. It's not that we don't use steel anymore, and it's not that learning won't continue. It's not that education won't continue. The regimented, control-based system designed to create parts to go into a machine has to fail because it simply no longer applies. Let's take another one. Here's a totally... Different question than anything we've had today. What is your opinion about guns as a monetary type of investment? Would you go for something old or buy something new in box and just put it away? How would you store it them? I have precious metals, cash, real estate, a 401k, an IRA, and three months of food. Are guns an okay way to further diversity? Thanks. Um, I actually responded to this email and said uh, pretty much that I, I think this can work, but it it usually doesn't. In fact, here's what I said. I think guns most often are a negative return if you're looking at it purely from a money stance. The only way you make a decent return is to sell during a hysteria moment, but guns do hold value. They just seldom go up uh, much more in the short to mid-term. Some exceptional stuff or hard-to-find stuff goes up. Buying really smart works if you find a seller that needs money. Usually this is only through a private seller, though. Just go to gunbroker.com and you can see what people are asking and what they are getting and how many more sellers there are than buyers. Good question. I will use it Monday to go deeper with it. But you can't justify buying a gun in general to your wife with it's a better return than a certificate of deposit. It's probably, if you buy the right gun at the right time, the right way, about the same, you know, a couple points, maybe. Maybe. Um, as, as the price of guns go up, uh, the price of a used equivalent tends to go up with the the, the 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 current version. So if you look at something that's been around forever and you have a used one and it hasn't really been used much, it's pretty much been sitting in the box, uh, 
and the the gun was a hundred and fifty dollar twenty two when you bought it that now sells for three hundred bucks. It's quite reasonable that you could sell it for two fifty like pretty quick because anybody in the market for a new one would go. It's the same damn gun. It's the same damn gun. So unlike a car, right? So used cars tend to continue to fall in value even as new models come out that are of the same make, right? So they're both uh, Chevy four, uh, Toyota Four Runners, for instance. Like one that's 20 years old is vastly different from one made today. And there's a lot of innovations and changes in guns and, and what have you, but the popular weapons are the same as the same as the same. Little additions, little changes, but nowhere near the evolution that a car has. And let's face it, uh, a, a car with 100,000 miles on it is a lot more depleted in value than a gun with a 1,000 rounds through it. I mean, guns traditionally last for multiple generations. Cars are falling apart in five to ten years if they're not really maintained well. And even in that case, I mean, 20-year-old cars are usually on the verge of complete collapse unless they are heavily, heavily maintained. People with all the old antique cars will tell you, yeah, it looks cool, it's great, I love it, or I wouldn't have it, but it's a rolling hole into which I put money. Cars, you know, break down over time. So it's not like a car. You know, it does tend to hold value, but the reality is almost anything that you want to buy in the gun world, if you go to gun broker, you can find somebody selling one almost all the time. And the stuff that gets hard to find, like there was a time where I was looking for a, a 260 Remington in a certain configuration at a certain weight and length and everything, and it was there wasn't a lot of them for sale, especially in the used world, and the new ones were very expensive. But you have to find somebody looking for that one thing that you have. So I think the way that you generally can do okay with guns is to be very open to the opportunity buy. Right? So it's you happen to be at a gun show, you happen to walk by a counter, you look, and there's a you know a decent old double barrel shotgun. Uh, I'm not gonna buy like wall hanger stuff. I'm talking about you know, a modern, but you know, you know decent little bit of rust on it, but in good shape. And it's a gun that should be selling for, let's say, 500 bucks. And it's on the table, and the guy's got it for 400 bucks because he's trying to move it for whatever reason. And if you go up to him and say, I'll give you 320 for that. And he goes, nah, no way. Somebody will buy it. And you go, okay, sit on it, and you go to walk away. Sometimes he'll go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Right? Wait a minute. Come on back. How about 370? 320. And a lot of times, then you can stack. Right, this is how you get good deals like guns and gun shows. You go, well, this little gun over here. What do we want for that? Oh, four hundred. Right, and you go. Well, uh, I'll go six twenty for both of them. So I've, I've deeply discounted both guns. But a lot of times, since he's moving too, and you're there ready to buy, they'll deal. And then a lot of times, <laughs> that gun can be sold for a profit. But I mean. You're not gonna you're not gonna be able to turn a gun collection the way you can turn a silver collection. As far as I need the money now, so let me get it back out of it. I actually think that if we want to look at guns as an invest as an investment, maybe we should look at it more the way that our our grandparents did. And their view wasn't, you know, my grandfather bought this old three three thirty six Marlin in thirty five Remington. He wasn't buying that gun because he thought, you know what, in the future I'll be able to sell it and make money off of it. He thought, I'll hand it down to one of my sons and I'll hand it down to one of my grandchildren and I'm buying this in the 1950s for a fair price. 
by a well-known manufacturer of guns in the United States of America that I trust to make a good gun. And I know damn well a hundred years from now that it'll be in the hands of one of my heirs and it'll still do what it was intended to do and it'll do it well. And if you had to go out and buy the equivalent of it then, it would be much more expensive. It was a multi-generational investment. And this is why... You, you, we look at our grandparents, and for those of us who come from rural areas, we did lots of hunting and, and fishing and stuff, and your grandparents that had a rifle, a shotgun, and a twenty-two, right? And maybe one other somewhat specialized shotgun, and maybe a handgun. And think, you know what? Granddad didn't have a lot of guns because he didn't have a lot of money. But if you start examining what a blue-collar worker made in their generation, you know... There's a reason they, they talk about in the, the song Allentown that you, you're, the prior generation spent their weekends at the Jersey Shore. That's back when it was a classy place, by the way, not, not a reality TV gimmick. They lived, they lived pretty good. Odds are your gramps could have afforded another gun. But when he had a gun, that every time it went bang, the deer went down. When he had a shotgun, that every time it went bang, feathers flew off the back of the pheasant and it crumbled and went to the ground, he didn't need another gun. He didn't need another gun. When he had a handgun that he knew he could depend on to defend his home with, when he had a .22 that worked well and he could go out and target practice with it or teach the grandkids how to shoot with it, he said, I'm done now. And I don't think I can ever be there. I don't think I can ever regress that point. I have such a love for firearms. But I think we can learn from that wisdom. That was the investment mentality. Buy what works, be proficient with it, And use it to feed your family, use it to defend your family, and use it to pass on a heritage. If I'm going to invest in guns, then that's the way I want to put the preponderance of my investment. The lasting gun that I know one day will be in the hands of my great-grandson. So long as we live in a, in a nation with enough liberty for it to be in his hands anyway. And the best way I know to make sure that liberty remains is to make sure I pass down the heritage. Really great question. When I first read it, I didn't see it going that way. But as I thought about it and responded to the email, I realized what a great question it was. Thanks for that one. Uh, I really appreciate it, John. Uh, John sent, sent that question in. You know, um, the next one here is from Karim, who always sends me great stuff. And, and I do come down really hard on police officers sometimes when they break their oaths, as I should. And people often say, well, you hold up good examples of police officers that do their jobs. And my answer is depends. If you mean they do their job like they do their job the way that everybody else does their job, I thank you for your service. I appreciate what you do. And that's it. I'm not going to feature somebody because, well, you know, he arrested the right person instead of the wrong person. That would be like saying the janitor did a good job, so we need to give him public recommendations. right? I know the jobs aren't equivalent, but in the end, I expect you to do the basics of your job. But when people stand up, then I recognize them. And I like when I can do it for police officers because I wish more of you would stand up. Here's three standing up. This is uh, on 5NBC Chicago. Three Illinois police officers sue, claim arrest quotas. Three patrol officers are suing the normal police department, saying the central Illinois town is improperly disciplining them for failing to meet arrest quotas. The paragraph in Bloomington reports the officers filed a lawsuit in McLean County Circuit Court. They say they were disciplined for not meeting a minimum number of arrests per month for traffic, criminal, and ordinance violations. 
Normal, and Normal's a town, by the way, so if it sounds a little weird, Normal Police Chief Rick Belcher and Normal City Manager Mark Peterson declined to comment on Wednesday. Gee, I wonder why. They haven't seen the, they said they haven't seen the lawsuit. Um, earlier this year, the police chief said the department has performance standards, but it does not have quotas. The officers are asking for an injunction to end the town's policy on arrest minimums. Um, see, this is bullshit. Like when a, when a, when a police chief like, well, we have performance standards, but we don't have quotas. Well, what are those standards? See, if they were actual standards, they would be officers are to carry out their duty in the following, and when they observe the following, this is how they respond to it. So. A performance standard would be, I'm a cop, I'm walking down the street, I see somebody come running out of a store carrying something and hauling ass while the while the uh, shopkeeper yells, stop, shoplifter. I should do something. That would be a, I have observed a crime in progress, and if I fail to respond to a crime in progress, my performance standard would be a failure in that regard. Okay, that's a performance standard. If you say, well, our performance standard is that officers uh, need to make sure that they're doing traffic duty, and we know that based on all this bullshit, hama hama hama, that they should be writing at least twenty uh, tickets a week, and you're going to say that's a performance standard, that's a quota, and 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 great for these three officers. So I'm sure whatever slap on the wrist reprimand that they got, it, it really probably didn't hurt their careers at all, and the easy thing for them to do would be laid down like good little lap dogs, put their belly in the air and get scratched for being good boys and go out and start meeting the quotas. And I'm sure if they wanted to, they could. But this is not how law enforcement was supposed to work in America, ever. Ever. Officers of the peace are supposed to help keep the peace. Really, really, really simple concept there. Not hard to understand at all. And this means going out and setting up speed traps to get a specific number of people when you know damn well that the average speed on the average road is higher than the posted limit, and they could do it any time they wanted to, and we do it just for the purpose of writing tickets, we've got a problem. We've got a problem. And I know there's officers out there that do a lot of traffic work, and you guys pull people over, and it's like a 50, and some ass clown's doing 85. Cite that son of a bitch. He's a public nuisance. He's a danger, okay? But I got a ticket in Helena, Montana, okay? For doing 41 in a 30, the road was three lanes each side. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't see a vehicle in any direction, 41 miles an hour, and the cop that gave me the ticket said, Slow down, it's too fast, it's dangerous. On a three-lane, one-sided road? At 2 o'clock in the morning on a well-lit street? In the fast lane, by the way? Mainly because I was going to make a ride at the next light. Now, you know why he really pulled me over? 2 o'clock in the morning, this guy might be drinking. And when I wasn't, when I wasn't, then it was, well, write him a ticket. for, And it was, at least Montana, I can say this, like the ticket was like, I want to say it was like 27 bucks or something sticks in my head with no big deal. But that was, that was, it's preposterous that that was an, a dangerous speed. And in most instances, that officer would have used his judgment and simply said, nah, not worth it. But because there was an opportunity for a greater arrest. And then when that opportunity wasn't there, well, damn it, now I'm pissed. I gotta make my quota. And I bet you quota's at, at, at stake in that one. Cause, cause I was completely reasonable and, Decent and 
you know. And I've I've been pulled over in situations like that and been like, oh, with a verbal warning and what have you. I know sometimes cops are just like, okay, they speed and I can pull them over. If I do that enough, I might find people that are actually dangerous because I come up, I talk to you. Hi, sir, I need your license registration. I'm all calm. My demeanor's fine. And you're like just nervous and fidgeting and jerking around and hiding shit. Well, okay, now you're and, – and, and look, I know some people are like, well, they shouldn't be able to do that. Well, we do have speed limits, and you do agree to a contract – When you get a license and drive on the public streets funded with public money, that's what they're out there to do. So I'm okay with that. But this quota system is bullshit. And I know for a fact that it happens almost everywhere. I've talked to enough police officers that when you get that, that guarded blue uh, cloaking shield down, and you go, well, did they get, get on you for not writing enough tickets? They're like, well, yeah. Okay, well, then that's a quota. Right? And... Like, so my, what, what, one of my contacts told me was, it's like this. They can't tell us you have to write 20 tickets in a period of time. But they can say you haven't written enough tickets. And it doesn't take long before you figure out what that number is, but I'll stop telling you that. That's a quota. It's a backdoor quota. Good on these guys for standing up. Because your oath is to protect and serve the people. And it has been ruled time and time again that quote, arrest quotas are unlawful. And that means you, charged with upholding the law, are partaking in breaking the law if you participate in that activity. That means you're an oath breaker. Don't do that. Be like these two guys here. Stand up. And there's more cops out there that are good people than bad people. I believe that. But I'd like to hear from you. And I wouldn't like to hear from you in an email. I don't want to hear from you telling me, oh, I've never observed it. I want to hear from you being like this. When you see what's something that's wrong, I want you to stand up for the people that you're supposed to protect. And if you're not willing to do that, turn your badge in, go find a job doing something else. Because that's what we need in people wearing the uniform. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Adios.